0: Hey there, and welcome back to yet another episode of Control Alt Azure. This episode is sponsored by Solvetto. Stay ahead of the game and advance your career with continuous learning opportunities for Azure cloud professionals. Solvetto EduHouse, learning as a lifestyle. Start your journey now on eduhouse.fi slash cloud pro. I am Tobias, and I'm back again with UC. What's up, my friend?
1: Hey, Tobias. Uh, The snow is melting away real quick here in, in Helsinki, Finland. And I'm I'm living in the new house and I made the mistake this past winter, which was the first winter in the house, that when I was cleaning and, and pushing away the snow from the balcony that we have, it was full of snow for a couple of weeks. I sort of just dropped the snow on the backyard. And I now have a small, small mountain of snow which i'm chipping away one day at a time because i have no place to put the snow anymore so after each meeting or call that i'm taking from home i take a five minute break i take a cup of coffee walk on the on the backyard deck and kick a bit of the snow away or maybe i have a small shovel and i'm chipping it away and the snow will be gone by next winter i'm quite sure because I'm making real progress here.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mid mid summer, maybe mid June, July. Hopefully the last note went yep. <laughs> away. And then what October you get it back? <laughs> yep. Roughly, roughly, like that. So <laughs> yeah, what's up yeah. with you? So on my side, also around the house, it's been some time for garden planning. So we had a garden design architect here the other day and we have a very small garden, so nothing fancy but we moved in two years ago and now we just want to k- get some ideas what we can do where should we plant a small tree do we need any fruit trees like apples or something like that just to make it a bit more cozy and, Im- and inviting cuz right now it's just grass and wooden decks so hopefully we can achieve some fun things with the garden this year so i'm now making a plan which is like a 2d print of the the garden from above from a satellite picture i'm just kind of placing things out as the consultation from the other day with the garden planning. So hopefully we find some nice ideas. So that's what I have spent some of my spare time on, and we'll probably spend a lot of the time on this year to figure out what we want
1: to do with the very small garden that we have. Sounds fun. So today, we will be talking about building your own chat GPT solution with Azure Open AI. And the intention really is to look at the Azure OpenAI side, not so much on what I feel a lot of people I talk to about ChatGPT and AI in general. I feel a lot of people associate ChatGPT purely for the OpenAI hosted instance of ChatGPT, which is great, of course. But now we talk about what can you achieve if you go through Azure and you actually start building on top of the models that are available from Azure OpenAI. So I think we've all been exposed to AI in the past couple of months, definitely. Uh, so Toby, I, I, I know you've been using ChatGPT, the public one, but have you been exposed to Azure OpenAI side as well?
0: I have. So in, in Azure, you can you can create that, and I think you have to still sign up for a specific form to get access to it. But you can do that. So I, I have been playing a little bit with OpenAI on Azure, which is pretty fun. So you can set up a playground. You can try different models. You can really explore like the inner workings of these models. So And by doing that, you can kind of realize how GTP works. So for the ChatGPT, which is powered by the OpenAI stuff in Azure OpenAI, you can see some of this technology surface to you, so you can kind of play around with it a little bit more. You can change the parameters and stuff like that. So very limited exposure still, but I am impressed with the simplicity of getting started with this. And the results are just as amazing as when you do it on the
1: public chat GPT website, for example. Agreed. For for a couple of years, I dabbled with Azure Auto Machine Learning and the Machine Learning Bits and obviously, with cognitive services as well. But with cognitive services, you have a ready made algorithm and a ready made model, and you feed a bit of sample data and get something back. Like, here's a picture of a banana. Can you see a picture of a banana? And the cognitive service would say, yes, I see a picture of a banana. It's fun, but it's not amazing anymore. And with Azure Auto ML and Azure ML, I always felt that I'm out of my league. I don't do Python all too much. I know the basics of that. I don't really enjoy doing Python myself. And immediately when you go to the machine learning side, you sort of get into this vast barren wasteland where you have a lot of things you know nothing about. And then they sort of say, well, good luck, let's see what you can come up with. And you're always uncertain that, well, I'm training the model, it takes four hours. I have no idea what I'm getting back, let's hope it works. And I really, really did not find that fun. And with OpenAI, I think we've, we've we've taken a huge step forward to democratizing AI, if you will, what Microsoft has been talking about for a couple of years, that anybody can use it. Even without understanding anything about machine learning or AI or any of that stuff. But before we sort of dive deep into Azure Open AI, um, Toby, have you looked at what the open AI organization is? How does that relate to Microsoft?
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, the only thing I know is it's this huge nonprofit where you have these big founders, the big names Elon Musk, Sam Altman. All of these folks you kind of invested in and and are pushing for it because AI is clearly the future for a lot of things. But I I don't have a lot of insights into what they do in open AI. I'm not I'm not sure how open source it is or closed source it is. So I'm not gonna say I'm not gonna sit here and say that I know everything about open AI. Definitely not. I'm only exposed to Chat GPT and the Azure Open AI kind of technical platform and I am harvesting the results of that as I learn, and that's the exposure I have. What about you?
1: Fair enough. So I've been following the OpenAI organization a little bit, not, not like on a daily basis, in the past couple of years. So I knew it existed, but it always felt like, yeah, they're, they're building something. Let's see if anything comes out from that. And funny enough, the organization's name is OpenAI but I don't think they are opening all that much anymore, obviously, because there's a great business here. So when we look at Azure OpenAI, first we sort of need to understand how do models, or perhaps people would say even services nowadays, like ChatGPT, GPT-3, DALE, DALE DALE-E model, why do we care about this? If we talk about Azure OpenAI. And, and my perception, and Toby, you might have a slightly different view on this. My perception is that these are language models or transformer models, defend, depending on what you're doing. These are models that have been trained on large data sets. And a lot of that data is sourced from the public internet. And then you typically talk about the LLM, the Large Language Model. So there's a couple of really good studies on how these work, and and they quite rapidly go into super complex topics. I've read about those a little bit, just to sort of understand a bit more. And to dump it down quite a bit, the Large Language Model is essentially, you get a lot of data, you do statistical analysis on that. And for the text models, text-to-text models like ChatGPT, the intention is that we have enough data that we can start calculating the probabilities, how different words and sentences relate to each other. That's mainly what it is about. Obviously, it's more complex, but on the high level, that's how it works. So we have GPT-3, which is the language model that people started using in January. Then we have ChatGPT, which allows you to use GPT 3.5, and just now recently GPT-4, so essentially GPT-4 is more complex. It has more data, it has more training within the large language model. Then we have Codex, which is a descendant of GPT-3, but that's trained with, with the GitHub repositories with code, and I think Python is, is the sort of number one language in there, but it supports JavaScript, C-sharp, and so on. And then we have the Dull E2, which is a transformer model that creates images from text prompts. So those are sort of the ones that I've memorized and, and I'm using more or less every day now. But I'm also seeing that these are tools, the models are sort of closed, So you accept what they're giving back to you. And let's talk about the bias a little bit later in this episode, but Toby, how do you find this? Do do you sort of perceive the models like I described or, or somehow differently?
0: No, I I think you nailed it pretty well there. And like, I I think we should do a distinction always between, between GPT, like GPT 3.5 and GPT 4 and the language model and then chat GPT. Because every time you hear someone talk about it, they always say ChatGPT is a language model or ChatGPT is this or that. But that's really the interface that exposes this thing. And, and that's the thing that really got the attention from the wider market. So I think this is uh, a good kind of summary uh, that you provided. And you know I, I like that you touch on Dal E2, which I think is pretty cool. I have used that together with ChatGPT to create a book and I wanted to try and and get illustrations along with the book. So within, I think, two hours, I created a full eBook with 11 chapters. Each of the chapters has a couple of images each, all following the same format and style that was imagined up or hallucinated, if you will, by Dell E2, based on the prompts that I received back from ChatGPT for the storyline. So just a fictional story about something I made up, just to try it out, and it was pretty good. It doesn't come out perfect, so you have to kind of brush on the model a bit, and brush on the text and the the storyline. It's a very short book that I tried, but I got a a book that I could read for my kids as a nighttime story, uh, with a couple of chapters, every chapter being two pages and then a big image that goes with the the text, so you can follow along, just like when you read like Winnie the Pooh or anything like that. So definitely love to see these things come to life. But I, I think the assessment that you said there is it's it's pretty pretty good. But you know, what is Azure OpenAI? So if we talk about all of these things and we now want to talk about Azure and OpenAI, so how does that fit into the picture? What knowing all of these things and the like transformers and the models exist what is Azure OpenAI? Is that an add-on to that? Is it something that leverages these things? Is it something we can start playing around with to create our own models? Or what is it?
1: So Azure OpenAI is the commercial service that runs on top of Azure. And my understanding is that OpenAI, the organization offering Chat GPT and everything else, they run the workloads on top of Azure as well. So What Microsoft now did is they commercialized those models for customers, enterprise customers, but obviously for for smaller companies as well, to utilize those models sort of like in their own dedicated instances. So what you can do is you can provision an Azure service called Azure OpenAI. Within those services, you can choose what models to create, And they will be your instances of those predefined large language models or those transformer models. And then you would use those as APIs for any of your own solutions. And I find this as the more interesting bit, because this allows me to control the cost, scalability, network routing, security, authentication, authorization, everything because it's a plain Azure service now. Instead of being an external API that somebody else is hosting for me outside Azure or outside my subscriptions and my tenant. So this gives me more interest in trying to understand how Azure OpenAI really works, and what can I do with those models? Can I tweak the models or am I just being given a model and somebody else decides, well, this is the best model for you, this is the best model for everybody. But if you want to tweak that, well, you you can't. With Azure OpenAI, you pay for the usage uh, based on tokens. Let's talk about tokens in a bit. And then you get to expand or augment those models as well, which I think that the OpenAI-based models do not allow as really for you to do. So that's, that's sort of my understanding and my experience on, on Azure OpenAI.
0: I, I took this for a spin, and I know you did as well. So like the, the capabilities here is that you can use these existing models like GPT-3 and ChatGPT. It has a bunch of other models as well, as I know, and I, I know you took a look at some of those. And GPT-4 has also been announced to be available, which is cool. So we see advancements there. You can utilize the Codex models. You can u- utilize a bunch of different things, and you can kind of tweak and customize it. So what's in... If we look at like the capabilities of open AI high level, without diving too deep into this, what is what are the like the key features or capabilities that we need to understand with this in order for this to make sense for us to to explore?
1: That's that's a good question. And on the surface, Azure OpenAI doesn't have too many buttons. It has its own management interface, it's not part of Azure Portal. And there's only a couple of things you can click around. But then once you go down the APIs, I, I feel it gets more complex. So the existing models, you can provision your GPT-3 model. You can uh, uh, provision a ChatGPT model. So ChatGPT uses a model called GPT-3.5 Turbo. And GPT-4, as you mentioned, was announced. It's not widely available yet, and, and it's, it's more performant and it's more capable than GPT-3.5 Turbo or GPT-3. But you also have other models that are more lightweight, meaning they are less costly, they might be faster, and they might be better suited for specific use cases. So those models include models like Curie and Babbage and Ada-based models, and they are tweaked for different purposes. And and the GPT-3 model, which is sort of the base model here, that's called Text DaVinci 003. But then you can choose to go, well, let me go with Ada 001, and that gives you a more limited language model, but it's also faster, perhaps cheaper, and more fit for certain scenarios.
0: So I think that's a, a key learning then to explore is, when you make these choices, is it more important that you get a lightweight model that is faster? Is it more important that you get something that is more expensive, but also perhaps more accurate depending on the, the size of the model? Like these things are these are like this is becoming a complex landscape to try and understand. What do I select when? And I, I love to get that insight. Um, you know, because obviously the price will be different depending on the model, the um, you know, what you choose. And I think maybe that's the next step to figure out as anyone starts exploring this on Azure OpenAI, is we have a bunch of different models, figure out the differences, and how can that serve your use case? Because that's really where I see like the customization being important, where if you make a decision to go with Babbage or Ada or DaVinci or whatever, you might get pretty significant changes in the outcome. And that's important to understand. So it's not just plug in ChatGPT into Azure OpenAI and off you go, you get exactly the same because there's a lot of opportunity here to customize this and change it to exactly your business needs. Uh, So I think that's important to understand for for anyone, but also how that can relate to the cost because different models might be cheaper to run as well.
1: Exactly. And then when you move beyond GPT-3, which is the sort of text-to-text chat style model, you give it a prompt, you get something in return, and then you can continue or carry on that discussion. When you go beyond those, you have Codex, which is the one that GitHub Copilot is using, for example. You have a couple of Codex models. Most capable language on all of those models is Python, but there's also support for C-Sharp, JavaScript, PHP, Perl, Ruby, Swift, TypeScript, SQL, and so on. The Codex models are models like Code, DaVinci, 002, and code Cushman001. So there's plenty of versions or revisions of those models, and each model are tweaked for slightly different use cases again. So how I felt when I was initially playing around with this a couple of weeks ago for the first time, how I felt was that back in the day, when we got HTML, you might recall to maybe late 90s, early 2000, you didn't really have any proper editors, so you would open Notepad or Visual Intradev and just type out HTML from your heart. Then you felt, well, I need some dynamic stuff here. Let me do CSS, let me do JavaScript. And they were very very simple at the time. That's when I learned the basics of CSS, and then I dropped out of that mode when CSS somehow became super complex. But there was a huge difference if you opted on which framework, let's say from CSS, you would have jQuery, you would have something else. And depending on what you would use, the end result would be different. And I feel now with the models, which model you choose from Codex, you get different results. So, you need to try them all to sort of get the feel of the land to understand when do I use what? That's sort of the learning curve here, I feel.
0: Yeah. So, we know that there are some explorations to be had. Um, It is available for anyone to kind of sign up to get access to. Then, how they make that selection, I have no idea. But sooner or later, it's going to be available to everyone, I'm pretty sure. But do try and sign up for it uh, sooner than later I'm, I'm pretty sure we'll get some some access to that so how, how does it work now we let's say we we know everything we need to know about the models and and what to choose or we just choose something to get started how do you provision this service so let's talk about Azure for a moment so is this like a bicep template or is it a a service in the portal you can go and deploy it or is it something that you have to somehow figure out different, is there a huge architecture we need to kind of deploy to get this up and running? And are there multiple components or is it just like a storage account? Hey, click the button, set up the storage account, put some parameters
1: in, voila. It's it's like a storage account. You go to Azure Marketplace, search for Azure OpenAI, provision, select the location, next. You wait 20 seconds, done. You have a single, a single object. You click on that, it gives you the basic Arm-related features like do you want to use a VNet? How do how do you want to access the endpoints? You get the get the access keys and whatnot. But then the overview page on Azure portal for Azure OpenAI just has like three buttons: open the portal. Okay, let's go here, and that's where you do the actual work. So provisioning yeah. this takes a minute, but I told I I think you mentioned you need pre-approval right now for the service. If you're listening this six months from now, it might be widely available, but now it's a bit more limited. I think mostly for capacity reasons and possibly for Microsoft to gather enough data to understand how businesses are planning on using this, because these are quite powerful tools.
0: Yeah, but I I really like it. So I I took it for a spin with the playground and you get the API um, and you had the endpoints and what I really love about this, just like if you go to Chat GPT and you say, hey, can you write me a C-sharp snippet to do this? I, I asked ChatGPT to write me an Azure function that is triggered by a queue with a specific name. The connection string to what, whatever API it needs to connect to should come from an Azure key vault, so and it should use managed identity to access the key vault. And I just put all of that in, and I got a C-sharp code out for an Azure function that I put into a Visual Studio, and that that snippet connected to a key vault. I had to, of course, put my own URI to the key vault in. I connected my managed identity to the account running the code, and gave that access to the key vault. I put the secret in the key vault to the API, and I tested with this Azure OpenAI API. I took the API key I got for using that, so you can kind of request, make requests via code or an API. Put that into my Azure function. And then I put a message in the queue saying, hey, I like the prompt for Chat GPT," And I say, hey, what is the best ice cream? And, and can you justify that? Please write me a marketing poster for the best ice cream flavor. And I sent that off to the API and I got the result back through my Azure function that I did not write myself. Uh, with le- leveraging Azure Key Vault, the perimeter security setup, I enabled all, all the fancy stuff that you can. So within 25 minutes, I leveraged the API of Azure OpenAI uh, that you get for the playground or for your kind of OpenAI endpoint. So in 25 minutes, I got that up and running. I connected via code, c in my case, from the Azure function back to the API, and I could get requests in. And then I said, all right, so that that, that doesn't really give me much other than just calling the API from code. So I want to take that to the next level. And I said, hey, and, I, and I did this, using the API now instead of going back to ChatGPT, which gave me the Azure function. So now I'm using my own API, API and I put a message into the queue and I ask it, can you please write me a website with a text box and a big button that says, ask me anything, and that should call this Azure function, which is hosted on that public URL, and then it should put that into the queue and then it you know the, the function puts picks that up from the queue so i had two functions one which is just like a rest endpoint a put which puts whatever message into the queue then the other function picks that up automatically and then spits that back out on the web page so within 1 hour i built a new web page with a button that connects to an api when you click the button it takes whatever is in the text box sends it up to storage account the storage account then triggers the other azure function uh, runs that back to the API in Azure OpenAI and gets the results back and produces that on the website or puts that on the website. Less than one hour. I create a, a full circle or a system, super minor, of course, but within one hour, it's pretty good because the only thing I did was the wrapping around it, right? So like the the wrapping around the, the package because everything else comes from OpenAI in, in the Azure OpenAI endpoint. So just some kind of, like a a brief story around how you can use that to even build on the API. So you get the API, but then you can just ask it, say, I don't know what to do with this API. Can you write the code for me? Sure, here you go. And then you have to modify and tweak here and there. But if that gets you 90% of the way, because you tell it what you want, in what way you want it, with whatever security capabilities and features and so on, it's gonna write it for you. And then you just do the final 10,
1: 15%. Super cool. It's super cool to hear how you're using this, and it always brings me back to the idea that yes, the generative AI and LLMs they give you a hugely powerful way of performing the tasks at your work, yes, but it also requires you to understand what am I doing, what am I getting back, is this solid enough do i need to tweak this do i need to build something on top of this so i'm sort of thinking it's partially the same when we were kids and and you would get a pocket calculator it was so awesome you could just type in whatever formulas in there and you would get an instant answer and that sort of stopped me from using a pencil and a paper to do any calculations anymore because i didn't need to and the same I feel sort of happens here so somebody who wants to become let's say a developer or somebody who wants to become an author or somebody who wants to become something else they can offset and and offload a lot of the thinking and 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 the sort of manual repetitive tasks to an AI get the results and fine tune from there but at the same time what i'm seeing is that a lot of a lot of the use cases for let's say ChatGPT gpt seem to be here's a funny prompt here's the answer i got back that brings no value it's it's like yeah it's it's an echo chamber i'm i'm not getting anything from this though so i feel that once you start integrating these capabilities into your applications into your work into the tasks that you do that's when you actually get the value But I don't think the value is purely in having this AI engine. The value is being able to use the engine the best you can, so that you can do the work you're supposed to be doing better, or bring better quality to your work. So I I feel we're still in this sort of very early stage, and perhaps five years, Five years from now, we are not talking about AI anymore. We're simply saying I'm enhancing my work with this whatever tools, but I don't really care how the AI works in there. But that yeah. brings me back to what I'm already seeing as a smaller bias in these models. Because what you put in there as a prompt or as a query or as a question, you're getting something back. So you need to be quite vigilant in understanding what's, What's the response I'm getting? A super quick example, then I promise to shut up for a minute. Uh, A friend of mine was asking me a tricky question on power platform licensing, and that's a tricky base. And I haven't really followed on that in the past year. I spent a lot of time on that in the past year, so then eventually I just gave up on that one. So I went to to ChatGPT, the public one from OpenAI. I laid down my question. Yeah, I have this amount of users, these tenants, these licenses. What's the best model to go forward from here? And super confidently, it started giving me an answer. Half of that was just hallucinations. Like, yeah, let's guess, maybe this works. And it was totally incorrect. So there's this bias. (laughs) And you need to understand what you're getting in order to be able to rely on the data
0: yeah, I think that's an important point that it's it's only echoing and rephrasing and rewriting content that it's finding somewhere, right? it's it's not AI in the in the capability that, hey, i I know the answers to everything. It's I know that I found this information somewhere and I'm trying to contextualize that for you and put that together. but that may or not may or may not be correct. So it's always up to you to to figure that out. And I think we get a. We got a long way there with the capabilities that we see now in AI and and in this open AI, different models and implementations. What I see, like looking into the future for some of the roles today that maybe create content or marketing or sales material, it's not that these roles will be eliminated. It's that a lot of those roles will maybe turn into something that can leverage these capabilities better. So you become more of a Thinking more about the prompt writing, and thinking more about the strategies around how you want to create things. and then you can leverage like the and consolidate information from these different open AI models to get the results. So I, I think that's something to think about. like how can you how can you get this into your workforce? How can you start training people on using this the right way with a critical eye? you know so you don't miss out on that train? So that so that's pretty interesting to see uh, see what happens. But I also did see in the news the other day that there are now companies who's looking to make to prohibit open AI models or AI models to scan specific areas of content. And if we start like putting a ban on AI accessing public information then we're going to see like this entire AI progression may be halted or or slowing down a bit. Uh, so so I'm, it, I'm following that with curiosity to see what happens, because I, I can see both angles to that. I, I see the benefit of you know, anything that's publicly accessible for anyone should also be accessible for AI to train on. But I also understand for whoever created that content in the first place, you don't want to, in a split second, have an AI just come sweep over your content Merge that into their model and then say, we now know all of that that you spent five years building. We now scrape that in five seconds. And then nobody needs you anymore. So I think that's an interesting kind of dialogue to uh, continue following as well. Just thinking like career paths and where things will lead in the future and the involvement and advancement of AI. I absolutely love where things are going, but it's interesting to keep an eye on
1: like the bigger picture here. I've been reading in, in the past couple of weeks, I've I've read a couple of blog articles from, from large organizations pushing out whatever. And halfway through reading that, like this feels like chat GPT generated the text. It's a lot of words, it looks fancy, but it doesn't really relay the message for you. So you can sort of sense that this was somehow auto-generated based on a model. And I'm sort of foreseeing that as a bad thing for, for authors, and bloggers, and writers, but also as a good thing, because it means I don't have to read those anymore. I can just pick this up and ask an AI model to summarize this for me in two sentences, and I can get the essence of that four pager that I didn't really want to read in the first place. Two things, the API, we already sort of touched on that topic. So when you have your Azure Open AI model, built, and build is is, the, is not the correct phrase here, because the model is already built for you. You can tweak the model, yes, but once you're happy with the model, there's a REST endpoint. And it's like any other REST endpoint, you can have API management in front of that, you can have VNet support, you can have web application firewall, front door, and so on, on Azure side. And the Azure OpenAI portal will generate wrapper code for you automatically for Python, or a command prompt or shell with curl. I think JavaScript, but not .NET by default, I recall. And then you can easily integrate this with Logic Apps, Azure Functions, Power Automates, whatever that talks to a common REST API endpoint. The endpoint is fairly easy. But then on pricing, this is a bit trickier. Is pricing is based on tokens. So text is broken down to tokens. So if you have a longer words, they're broken down into multiple tokens. Shorter words are not. Uh, Microsoft gives an example that if you have the word hamburger, that is three tokens. ham bur So it's per syllable, maybe? Maybe, but it didn't really spell out that it's per syllable. It's more like, well, we just break it down. Okay, okay. so... <laughs> Let's, it let's it was ki-
0: kind thing. of long, so we will adjust the pricing for you accordingly.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the pricing is based on 1,000 tokens at a time. So let's take the most obvious one. You want to use chat GPT, meaning GPT 3.5 turbo model on Azure OpenAI, currently only available on East US data centers or so not in Europe. You want to get you want to use that, 1,000 tokens will cost you 0.001 euro. So less than a cent for 1,000 tokens. So it feels cheap, yes, but what counts as a token? Whatever you push in through the API, you might have the prompt, you might have some sort of uh, formatting instructions for for the model, like you will be Batman, you are protecting Gotham City, assume the role of a superhero. Those are all tokens. You already spent like 200 tokens there. And then you're getting back X amount of tokens, and you can limit on the API how many tokens you're expecting back. By default, it's 800. So One prompt, one query, getting something back, you've already spent 1,000 tokens easily. So imagine if you open this to your employees or customers, they start hammering your chatbot that uses ChatGPT, you're easily up to millions of tokens in a couple of days.
0: Yeah, And, and thinking about that, I think that brings us to some considerations and recommendations around this, because I know when you deploy it, you get the API that you can expose, maybe it's an idea here to think about using API management as a wrapper in front of that, because then mm-hmm. you can also set up quotas and throttling, things like that. So you can then create your own developer portal for your devs and they can go and create an account that will get an API key, but you can then start limiting things and say, by default, these are the parameters. With this subscription or, or this level or whatever, you could control those parameters to say, well, you're a basic member, or you're just a one of our collaborators trying it out. That means you get 250 tokens by default. You know, you you can like set things up in in different ways with API management. So maybe that's a way. Um, and other things to consider around that is, of course, yeah, the cost, which you can then protect by introducing something that costs more API management, <laughs> which is always something you have to think about. Uh, but you can also protect it, right? It's a it's a resource being deployed and because there's an endpoint. I think. Azure OpenAI have support for virtual networks, and therefore you can also, I think you can use private endpoints with it. Yep. And when you do that, you can then start thinking about using API management if you wanna protect and, and expose your API in a specific way, and a web application firewall, front door, things like that, If you, if you wanna put perimeter security around it. So I think those are good things to think about as well, because they all will build on the cost as well. So as always, when we talk about pricing or cost, coming back to what we talked about recently in an episode, always think about the TCO or the total cost of ownership, because these things you know, might be fairly affordable if you choose a specific model for Azure OpenAI, but if you're gonna run this in a production workload or at scale internally, you're gonna need to protect it. You're gonna need to put guardrails in place so it doesn't get abused uh, accidentally or not. And and all those things are going to, of course, increase the bill a little bit. So always something to consider, always something to think about. But I love the fact that you can integrate private endpoints and you have support for VNets, and you can really think about your network architecture around it as well to start planning for how you want to use this and how you want to roll it out. So it's not just a click here and you get the service, and then it's freely available for anyone with an API key. You can still protect it in various ways. Um, using, for example, API management or an
1: Azure function as a relay or whatever you want. Really good insights. And things we haven't discussed during this episode. One thing is the image models, the Transformers DALA-E2, not available yet. It's in private preview. At some point it will open up. My assumption is that it's super GPU heavy. Uh, The price for that per 100 images is 1.89 Euro. So slightly less than two dollars per 100 images. It's it's yeah. not immensely cheap. The second thing is is their custom data sets. So if you want to augment any of these models, you bring in your own data. That's perhaps out of the scope for today's episode, but the cost for that is per hour because it spins up a compute resource to train the model with your data. For example, for Da Vinci model that. Uh, that gpt uses it's about 80 euro per hour of training and it easily takes an hour just to spin up and do a basic training for you
0: Hmm. wow yeah it's good to know about these things but i I love that you can train with custom data sets and do things like that and usually that's a point effort the way i understand it in the business model around that that i see is that's a point effort you might do it a couple of times but it's not something you run continuously you know until the end of time it's you have some material you want to train the model on. It might take half an hour, it might take an hour, it might take five hours, but it's a point effort. Now you've trained it, now you can start using it. So I think that's uh, that's pretty good. So I think that's, I mean, from my side, we've explored a little bit about Azure OpenAI, what it is and how to get started, and some considerations around deploying that. Is there anything else that we're missing that we need to think about?
1: No, I I think this was sort of the initial look. On Azure OpenAI, and once GPT-4 is more widely available, I think it opens up more opportunities. And also the image models, I'm I'm quite keen on keen on keen on getting to those. So try it out. Go through the form. We put the link in the show notes. Get access. Start building on stuff. And one one last thing before we get to the unexpected question is that. We also have a feedback form on the ctrl-alt-azure.com website. So if you have any feedback, good feedback, suggestions for episode ideas, ideas who to invite as a guest, or any further questions that you might might get from listening to these episodes, go to ctrl azurecom click feedback, fill it out. It's fully anonymous. Uh, we'd, we'd we'd love to get your feedback on on anything we talk about here. Yeah,
0: that sounds good. All right, so let's close it up with the unexpected question. Who is asking who this time?
1: I will be asking you. Are you ready? I'm always ready. All right. What sport would be the funniest to add a mandatory amount of wine to? <laughs> I,
0: I would say all sports maybe. Uh, <laughs> but like by experience, I know that golf is a fun sport to play this way, but perhaps only when there's not too many others on the course. We did have, you know, and growing up and playing golf a little bit, I, I did have a couple of those beer runs or at the time I didn't drink wine, but I imagine wine would be a good fit as well. We, for every, I don't remember the rules, every time you closed in or when you hold out or whatever, you had to take a drink or whatever it was. And the the better you got, the more you had to drink, which meant you didn't get any better at some point, and then you just got worse. It was a fun, fun thing. But I think table tennis in the form of, in Sweden, we we call it tennis, Like you run around the table. I'm sure there's an English name for that that I just don't know about. Uh, it's a fun game where you're a bunch of people. You might be 10 people at a ping pong table and you hit the ball over and then you run to the other side and you stand in line in the queue and the one on the other side hits the ball back, and then the other one, and you go, just go around with a queue on each side of the table. It's called round table tennis or something like that. And if you miss, you're out. So you get fewer and fewer people, and that means you have to run faster because the line is getting shorter. So when the line is only two people in front of you, you have to, when you hit from your side, you have to run quickly to the other side because by the time you get there, it's your turn to hit it again. And then if there's only one person ahead of you in line, it's going to be really challenging. So you run a lot. It's really good for your condition. It's really good exercise. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, Even to this day, I think it's really fun. I think that's a really fun sport to include some wine in. If nothing else, it's going to be very challenging because you run a lot. So it might also be very dangerous. But, you know, living on the edge and all that, I think that's yeah. that that might be fun. That's going to be my final answer.
1: Sounds awesome. I've never tried the uh, the Round the Table version of Table Tennis, but if there's ever an in-person Ignite or Build or MVP Summit or or something like this, we definitely need to try this out then.
0: With or without wine.
1: Yeah, with, with wine, obviously. <laughs> All righty. Thank you again for tuning in. Talk to you again next week on Wednesday. All right. See you then.